Well, I'd like to start off with a confession. Pam and I love to watch movies. It gets worse. We still have a DVD player. Now, for some of you who think I'm totally uncool, we do have a Blu-ray player, too, if that makes it any better. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I'm going to take, take care of that for Pastor Jim. I'm going to email him about, about streaming movies. He probably knows nothing about that. He's old as dirt. I know some of you kids think that I am. So, yeah, we know about streaming. We watch streaming movies. And actually, I spend a lot of time, because a lot of times, if you search the Internet, it'll say new movies coming out with you know, Netflix and Prime and other streaming movies each month. I actually check all that out and spend time. It's sort of a labor of love I do for Pam, and, and I look for movies that we, can, that we can watch. But the problem is, is that when you go, and then I check my, I was calling my friends at Rotten Tomatoes, when you, when you check what movies are about and, and even kind of maybe look at a preview or something like that, even if a, a movie's highly rated, so many of the movies have scenes and language that Pam and I have decided that we just don't want in our heads, we don't want in our hearts, and we don't want in our souls. Even sometimes we'll be watching a movie and we will turn it off. And we'll just say, we don't think this is appropriate uh, for us. And that's because the older we get, the more we have become aware of the title of our message today, which is The Power of Influence and Choices. Or if you like it better, The Power of Choices and Influence. They, they, they both sort of kind of can go in any type of an order. Last week, we talked about why the world needs you. This week, we're going to see why the world needs you and, and why uh, our choices and our influences in our lives really do, in fact, matter. We're journeying through the life of Abraham in a, in a series that we've entitled Venturing into the Unknown, and there's a good chance that that is your story right now. The way our country is right now, the way the health situation is, the way the government is, the way the economy is, you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. It's almost like God is forcing us to trust him, isn't it? Interesting how he kind of puts us in those situations. And so as we come to chapter 19, Abraham is barely in it. It's, it's actually easy to skip over it. As we said, it is rated R. Many, many pastors do skip over it and advise that you do skip over it. As soon as anybody tells me don't do something, I'm like, well, maybe I should do it. And, or, or they use it as an excuse to rail on gay people. So I'm not going to skip it, but I'm not going to rail on gay people either. And what happens in Sodom in chapter 19 is easy to see, but what led to it for Lot is not quite as easy to see as we see what happens to him. So I want to backtrack a little to chapter 13. You can turn there or we'll put it up on the screen for you and, and just understand how Lot ended up where he was by the time we get to chapter 19. 
In chapter 13, Abraham and Lot, we covered it already, were so rich. They had so many people working for them and a lot of livestock that the land couldn't support them. And we read in chapter 13, verse 10, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw. Just remember that. Just picture Lot seeing. He's, he's looking at. So, so what we see influences what we do. What we see influences how we think. And so as Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan and that it was well watered everywhere. And then there's an interesting parenthesis. The narrator writes, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So he looks out and he sees, oh, that looks good. He knows that's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. He, he knows the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he goes, oh, it looks so good out there. Maybe I'll go there. So, so really, from 13, chapter 13 till 19, that's been hanging out there, if you've been paying attention. It's, it's been hanging out there. And then it, it says, uh, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zar. Verse 11, then Lot chose for himself. So he saw, he thought, he, he let it get into his system, and he chose. Did he choose wisely or poorly? Poorly, Indiana Jones fans. He chose poorly. Young people have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated, he and Abraham, from each other. So what does he do? He leaves the single best influence in his life. Not only does he head towards a place where he probably doesn't belong, definitely doesn't belong. It looked good. It seemed right. He thought he was strong enough to withstand the pressure of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he leaves the best influence of his life. This is a worry that is constantly on the heart of any halfway decent pastor when people leave following Jesus, when people leave the church. Where are they going to end up? Now, a lot of times you say, oh, don't worry, Pastor Jim. I know they told me they're going to this other church. And then I'll be out somewhere like one of our outreaches and the pastor will come up from the church and he'll go, hey, can I meet Pastor Jim? I hear him on the radio. And so I'm like, how you doing? I hear so-and-so's at your church. And they go, I have no idea who that person is. And I'm saying, well, you sure? They're like, I have 15 people go to my church. I think I would know. I think I would know. Because this is how they get you from pressing them, is by saying, oh, I'm going over here now, or something like that. So he leaves the main influence of his life. Next verse, verse 12. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Remember, his name was Abram still then. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So he's not quite there. He's just close enough. You know, if he wants to get into the city for a little, you know, go see a show or something like that, he can do that. Nice dinner at a restaurant. But, but he's kind of still on the outskirts of town. Verse 13 says, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Well, when we come to chapter, thir chapter 14, we learn that Lot moved into the city. And then the evil kings came and they captured all of the people from Sodom, including Lot. 
And Abraham went out and rescued them. But what did Lot do? He went back to Sodom. He went back to Sodom. He didn't say, you know, Uncle Abraham, maybe, maybe I need to move a little closer to you. Well, then we come to what we saw last week, Genesis 18, 20 and 21, and it says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it has come to me, and if not, I will know. So he mentions that word outcry twice. What, what does that mean? Well, scholars tell us the word outcry actually means the cry of the oppressed. People who were being poorly treated by the people of Sodom, victims of a socially immoral society that cares nothing for people. And here's, here's the point, I think, that our world and, and most of the church just, just kind of refuses to see. You know, when you hear those things on the news, those horrible, horrible atrocities, you know, a, a group of radicals come into a town in Muslim and, and steal all the females, steal all the women. Don't you like the idea of somebody going in and wiping those guys out? Am I the only one? Am I the only one who thinks like that? Like, God, have mercy on those women who've been taken captive, and please deal with the oppressors. Well, here's the reality that most of us don't want to face, is for God to be merciful, he has to judge and deal with the oppressors. He absolutely has to. Interesting and sad to me how so many of these hot topics in our country and our churches just seem to come and go. We hear about them, and then we talk about them for five minutes, you know, over a coffee and bagel in our nice warm cafe or, or something like that, and then we don't seem to care about them. And I've heard many one-off sermons that pastors give, and you probably wonder why I don't, so I'm going to tell you why I don't. I've heard many one-off sermons on sexuality, on race, on poverty, on injustice, and to be honest with you, to dedicate one sermon, to dedicate a series of sermons, to even write one book about the subject seems incredibly cheesy to me. It's almost like, well, I read the book, I heard the sermon, oh, problem goes away. Like, like we really think that somehow, right, we, we think that, that just giving people food, just giving people money, just a few interviews with someone, maybe a sermon or some ridiculous thing, or just feeling sorry for people, is just going to fix this stuff. It's not going to. It also seems to me personally, I know I'm on the soapbox before the sermon even started, it seems to me personally that the church in America often kills its ability to reach people with its simplistic answers and or with its compromise. It also seems to me that, that once we hit a certain age, 
many people seem to think that the incredible power of cultural influence no longer applies to us. It's almost like we think, oh, that's for middle school kids and high school kids and college kids. And once you get out, of, you know, you turn like 24, 25, you outgrow all of that stuff. I don't think that's the case. Usually, most of you know this, that you can spend five minutes with someone and you can tell where they get their information from because they're so incredibly unbalanced. And again, as long as I'm on the soapbox, it seems to me, and I will listen to people who completely disagree with me on anything. In fact, I make it a regular thing that I do, that a lot of their impressions of Christians right now is that Christians sound incredibly unloving, incredibly self-centered and selfish. Now, I understand that it's usually those are the people that get on the news. Those are the people that usually get the microphone. Oh, sorry, I have one. And that doesn't mean everybody, and there's lots of deeds of kindness and love taking place all over the place. But it's easy, if we're not careful, to sound less lovingly biblical and sound more political. And right now, and please, I love this country. I love this country. I am, for many people who are immigrants, I'm not saying this to brag, I'm saying this I'm bragging on my God. I am a picture of the American dream. I started a company when I was 24 years old with $2,000 in a beat-up van. Why, anybody gave me businesses beyond me. <laughs> and less than 20 years later, I sold my companies to go do what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, be a pastor. Do you know how few people can say they did that? I love this country and what it provided for me. But this, this ugly brand of Christian nationalism that is developing in our country is turning people off to the gospel. That, again, coming from a man who loves this country and will stand up for this country. But I will not, and I hope you won't, lose your Christian witness in the process. And people being confused that somehow your, your politics is on an equal or greater footing than your Christianity. So what was going on in Sodom? People read chapter 19 and they go, well, it's really obvious. But there's a lot more going on. Hundreds of years later, the Lord will say this in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. He says, look, this was the iniquity or the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her, her daughter had pride, fullness of food. Whether they had, they had money. They were proud. They were arrogant. They had money and abundance of idleness. Oh, my goodness. You want to get into trouble? Become idle. 
so many people right now, my email box is full of people saying, I feel like I'm falling away from the faith. And I'm like, get into a routine. Do something. Do, just please, just don't sit around idle. How's the expression go? Idleness is the devil's playground. Neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. They, they, had, they, had, they, were, they were proud. They had money. They, had, they, had a bun, they were idle. And they didn't care about the poor and the needy. Verse 50. And they were haughty and committed abomination. Some versions say detestable things before me. Therefore, I took them away. Another version says, I removed them as I saw fit. So we see what happens, the sins that, that come out of pride. They're enormous. And he says they had pride. And then he begins to tell us in Ezekiel all the stuff that, that flowed out of the prideful heart. And God sometimes will have to humble us to take away that prideful heart. Now, now to be humble does not mean I'm humble. You can still be bold. But you know who you are. And you know what Jesus has done for you. And here's the problem with the heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. And when the heart is influenced and allows desires to take over, it doesn't even care what the Lord says anymore. It just begins to make decisions based on desires and influences. It just begins to choose what it thinks is best. That's why it says twice in the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man or to a woman but the end of that way is death. Sodom and Gomorrah are byproducts of a prideful and sin-filled culture. They are a byproduct of prideful sin and a culture that reinforced it. But let us not stand in judgment on them. So are prideful unloving and ineffective Christians because what we're going to read about Lot is unconscionable and 2 Peter 2, when we get to 2 Peter, I'll deal with it more, actually tells us that Lot was righteous. So what was he? He was a compromised Christian. Here's the problem. Some people go, well, I'm just a compromised Christian. There is a fine line between a non-Christian and a compromised one. And it's not a line that we necessarily can figure out for ourselves. It says, Peter tells us that he was oppressed and tormented about everything that was going on in Sodom. But what did he do about it? We're going to see. Nothing. He did nothing about it. So maybe he was righteous in terms of his eternity but he was sinful in terms of his presence. And we're going to see how it ruined his life. It ruined his life. Pride causes us to leave people that are good influences on us. Pride causes us to lie about them, to blame our problems on them. Pride is a wicked, wicked 
poison that affects us all. The way of Jesus is lost in prideful, self-centered Christians. And that can even happen when we're in church, when we're serving the Lord. It can even happen when we're helping people who we really don't love. Now, to be honest with you, I better get going and start the sermon. To be honest with you, I wanted to skip this chapter. And the reason I wanted to skip this chapter is because I wanted to spend three months on it. Especially after so many years in youth ministry. You say, how many years have you been involved with youth ministry? Well, I had been involved in youth ministry when one of the people of this church, she's probably watching from home. Her husband's here in the sound booth. But I'd been in youth ministry already for a number of years and uh, met a 16-year-old girl in youth ministry, and I think she told me she just turned 40. (laughs) That's why I'd want to spend three months on it, because I'm so sad at some of the choices people end up making. And the day it doesn't make me sad anymore will be the day when I get up and say to you, hey, today's my last day here. When it stops breaking my heart. But the point of our study is Abraham, and we'll see how the influence and his choices, his influences and choices to follow the Lord, although imperfectly, as we'll see next time, and Lot's choosing the influence of culture had very different outcomes for their futures. And as long as I'm on a mean streak here, I just want to say this. If, if you think that bad influences and culture is not influencing you, there's great parts of culture. Please don't, I don't think it's all wrong, but there are some bad parts of it too. If you don't think that it's influencing you, My friend, read the Proverbs, which will tell you you are a fool. So chapter 19, verse 1. Last week we saw that the the two angels left Abraham and, and the Lord alone. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the ground. Now the gate is typically where the leaders gathered. Soul-searching question for you people in the business world uh, or in anywhere. uh, Will rising up in a place of compromise like Sodom require you to compromise to get yourself to the top? Is, is, Is Lot one of the leaders? We're really not sure, but that's where they hung out. He had drifted away from the Lord, not even being captured in chapter 14 and being rescued woke him up. How different than Bible characters like Joseph and Daniel, Lot shows us what happens to worldly, half-hearted Christians who want God and the world. They will lose themselves. Oh, wait, let me tell you how the language is couched. I'm just there to be a good influence on them. Really. If you start to see even a little bit of a downward slope, you know you're in the wrong place. 
verse 2. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. So he offers them hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 says sometimes we might be entertaining angels unaware. Husbands, that's your cue to say to your wife on the way home in the car, I feel like I've been entertaining an angel unaware our entire marriage, babe. (laughs) And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he, Lot, insisted strongly. Why did Lot want them in the house? Lot knows what happens in Sodom in the middle of the night. So they turned to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house, and they called Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Now, you say, well, it just says we may know them. Carnally is in, print, in italics. That means it was added by the translators. It will become very obvious as we go on in the passage what they meant. So some of you parents right now are going, oh, that's what's in there. That's why you sent out an email that said it was a rated R sermon. Yeah, one thing you've got to say for the Bible, the Bible is just so faithful to make the car ride home interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you've got to love that about the, about the Bible. So so God will punish these men in this city, as we read in Ezekiel, for being prideful against what we might call word of God living, including their sexual practices. What what, what is the Christian ethic of sexual practice? It comes all the way from Genesis 1 and 2. God created them male and female in a one flesh union. And so what does that mean? We just simply call it this. One man, one woman exclusive and permanent till death do you part or till the Lord's return. You can do a lot of gymnastics around that if you want with the Bible. People will try. That doesn't mean we hate people. We choose a different lifestyle. That is just the God-ordained, the God-endorsed lifestyle. Now let's remember, people say, well, they, they killed, uh, God destroyed Sodom, because, we know, because he told us earlier, because of what happens tonight. No, he's already sent the angels there for that. That's why they're coming. And so it's also the sin of pride and oppression. Here you could make the case that in their pride and in their wealth and in their oppression, that the Sodomites treated outsiders horribly, that they were an oppressive people. Now, obviously, if they have a city with with people there. Some of these men had wives, yet yet pride and idleness led them down bad roads, and they tried to humiliate these two angels. Sometimes, and let me teach you this about, if you're a Bible teacher, maybe at your workplace or something like that. Sometimes we read the Bible and we say, Man, there's nothing about Jesus in here. And we're centuries and centuries and centuries before Jesus comes along, well over a thousand years. And and you say there's nothing here, but there's something huge here about Jesus. 
You see, they want the men to come out to humiliate them. How different than our Lord who invites the whole world into his family through the humiliation of Jesus Christ on the cross. Fair to say in their, in their pride, the men of Sodom continued to push the envelope on their sexuality. Uh, in his best-selling book, some of you may have read it, The, the Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. That's a book written by a, a, a non-Christian, although he does believe in the Christian ethic. He was raised in the church. But it's written by a non-Christian gay man who makes the case that crowds can easily suck us in. <clears throat> and his case right now is that much of what's happening in our world culturally is a result of people just hopping on the bandwagon of a series of bad ideas. But there's no doubt that the Word of God wants itself, not our culture, to guide our ethics, including our sexual ethics. And, and here's the thing that ethics, this is why something like the Bible is helpful because it is consistent. Ethics, including sexual ethics, change from culture to culture and change within cultures. And the situation that we're in right now is really relatively the last half century. And so we have the consistency of the Bible. Yet that's not an excuse for us to be unloving. Verse 6, it gets more bizarre. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said... So, so, the, so you have the angels on the inside of the door, and you have the sinners on the outside of the door. That, does that sound like heaven and hell, maybe? And said, please, my brethren, some versions say friends, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters. Actually, you might want to put your seatbelts on. They're on the side of your seats right now for this. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man, and, and to know someone refers to intimacy in the Bible. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Right now, all the ladies are like... <laughs> Let's just stop for a second. Another lesson in Bible reading. When the Bible records stupidity, it does not mean that it endorses the stupidity. Do we understand that? When the Bible records stupidity... It does not mean it endorses the stupidity. When you see polygamy in the Bible, people go, oh, the Bible endorses polygamy. I always go to everybody, keep reading. <laughs> it never turns out good for those guys. It never does. So he says to them, do as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since there is a reason they have come under the shadow or protection of my roof. If we compromise with sin, how did Lot do it? He saw, he moved close, he moved in, and now he's raising his family in it. If we compromise with sin, eventually 
even though we've probably been at it all along, but eventually we end up between, in between a rock and a hard place, and Lot knows he is there right now. Now, culturally, this is how people excuse this. Lot had a cultural obligation to protect his guests. True. True. But he also had a sacred obligation to protect his daughters. Sin is so complicated, and yet it is so predictable. How often does it leave us scratching our head or panicking, how did I get here? And how am I going to get out of here? And we will see later his daughters who were polluted by Sodom will actually have payback opportunity because their father forsook the sacred. They will forsake the sacred. Now, some Bible scholars argue this, that, well, the men are gay and they have no interest in women. That's why they offered to throw their, his daughters out there. Others would say, no, the, the daughters, probably, they're from Sodom, so they're not outsiders, and Sodom were typically uh, wicked towards outsiders, not towards their own people. If I ever were to write a commentary on this, I would just write, Lot is an idiot. That would be, that would be my simple thing. Lot is a stupid, stupid man. He has made one stupid decision after another, and stupid is as stupid does. And the big problem with Lot is this. Lot no longer lives in Sodom. Now Sodom lives in Lot. And this is what can happen to any of us. Ah, uh, once again, how different the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus didn't come out from the house. The Lord Jesus came out from Pontius Pilate and stood before the people and faced the crowd. And instead of offering his daughters, or instead of offering sinful people that were inside Pilate's house, what did he do? He offered himself. He said, take me. Take me. I am, I am willing to die for the sins of many. I am willing to die for you guys who are going to kill me. He would have said to these men outside the door, I am willing to die for you. Go ahead, kill me. I'm willing to die for you. So if anyone will turn to God and put their trust in Jesus, that door of heaven will not be shut to them. It will be cast wide open, and you will be invited in. Oh, how different our Jesus is than Lot. It will be open to you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here or you're watching us online, that offer is to you to put your trust in Jesus. In the big sinful church of the New Testament, the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul listed a whole bunch of sins and, he, and if you read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <laughs> every single one of us is in it. 
None of us are exempt. I don't care who you are. If you think you're exempt from that list, you are so full of pride. You're so far gone, man. You need to get on your knees and say, Lord, help me. But then he talks about people who've come to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, And such were some of you. You're no longer those guys. And he says, But such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified. You were set apart by God, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 9, And they said, Stand back. Then they said, Notice the judgment now on Lot. This one came in to stay here. He's what? He's an outsider. And he keeps acting as judge. And now they threaten Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, the angels inside the door, but the men reached out their hand and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So look what's happening here. Lot goes out to talk to them. Oh, friends, friends. And they're like, who do you think you are? Lot had no influence on the community. None. He's too compromised. Who are you to judge us? We know, we know what you're like, Lot. You're really no better than us. And yet, they want these men inside the door. The angels strike them with some sort of blindness. We don't know exactly what it is. Their desire for these men inside is stronger than even their desire for life itself. For those of us who are old enough to remember the AIDS crisis, it didn't, it didn't really stop a lot of the activity that was going on because certain people wanted their sexual preferences and they valued it more than life itself. We live in a time right now that's maybe a little bit different, but let us all be careful as followers of Jesus. And again, if you're not one, we're glad you're here, but let us be careful. Let us not be pressing for our temporary rights so strongly that we're compromising safety. It's, it's not faith to say, well, I'm just going to trust God because he's going to make sure I don't get sick. The Israelites had the same thing many times. They presumed God would win a battle for them, but God didn't tell them to fight it, and they lost Satan brings Jesus up to the top of the mountain and says, hey, jump off. The angels will get you. And he's like, I ain't presuming on that one. That's not what I'm here to do. And so let's be very careful. Let's be very, very careful about such things. I'm all for freedom. It was very heartbreaking for me and my wife to say to, our, to our, two of our boys, you can't come to our house for Christmas this year. One of my boys said, why? And I said, because I want to have a lot more with you. And I, I, and I don't want the 
you know, this virus thing. I don't, I don't want it either to kill me or I don't want to have any kind of permanent damage from it. And I don't want you to either. Verse 12, that, that, then the men, the angels, said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city? Take them out of the place. Take them out of this place. Then they tell Lot while they're there, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Do you know, do you know what's happened here? They've pushed God too far. You know, there, there, there seems to be a point where you can push God too far. Now, if you think you have, it's not you. <laughs> because it's people who think they can't do that. That's why Jesus told us to repent and believe. You know, a nation, God judges nations. And, and nations, a nation can only push God so far. Man, I pray he has mercy on us. I pray that he brings us to himself. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. Look at this. But his sons-in-law, to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Well, if we're surprised how Lot lost his moral background with his daughters, his son-in-laws tell us why. Now, we don't know whether he had other daughters or they were betrothed. We learned that with Joseph and Mary, so you're engaged, but you're not intimate yet. We don't really know what's going on with this. But the point seems to be there was, there was nothing about Lot that made him seem like the real deal follower of Yahweh to these young men. I mean, could you just hear it? I mean, could you just hear it? You know, Lot comes along and he says to his son-in-laws, you know, or they're engaged or something like that, and, and, and they're like, he's like, come on, we got to get out of here, man. I'm righteous Lot. God's going to destroy this place. That would be like, dude, you just offered our future wives to the crowd. You, or, or our sisters-in-laws, you just, you just offered them. You could just picture them looking at, at, at him going, you have... And you have, you have now and you have never had any credibility with us. What are you telling us we got to get out of this place? God's going to judge this place. God needs to judge you, man. You're a phony. Verse 15, when morning dawned, the angel urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed. Some of your versions say, swept away in the punishment of the city. But notice as we come to verse 16, they lack the will to escape. And while he lingered, what's Lot doing? He's hesitating. The pull of Sodom is so strong on him. He's blinded. They're blinded by the angels. The other guys, he's blinded to the kingdom of God and the promises of God. He's an inconsistent believer. Tells his son-in-laws to hurry, right? 
but he won't. And it says, the men took hold of his hand. Think about that. The men took hold of his hand. They had to actually grab him. They actually had to grab him, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. Right about now you're saying, why in the world is, why are they helping him? And we're told, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. As we come to verse 17, notice how many times the word escape, some of your versions say flee, is used. The sense of urgency the Lord wants us all to have when fleeing from sin. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he, one of the angels, said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Jesus said, If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Remember that. Do not look back nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed, lest you be swept away. Verse 18, Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Now that I'm an angel, I'm like, What do you mean, no? <laughs> like, I would be like, Oy vey, God, can I just please, please? I'll take the girls. I'll take his wife. I'll take the girls. But can I get rid of this guy? Verse 19, indeed now your servant has found, if your service has found favor in your sight, and if you have increased your mercy, which you have shown towards me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. What's he full of, fear or faith? Fear. See now, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is the little one. Please let me escape there. It is not a little one. And my soul shall live. And he said, verse 21, And he said to him, See, I have, fa- I have favored you concerning this thing also, that I, I will not overthrow this city for which I have spoken. So the angel says, I'm not going to do it. Hurry, escape. Therefore, I cannot do anything until you arrive. Therefore, the name of that city is Zar. So Lot's on the run. God is rescuing him from the destruction. Again. God is rescuing him. But what does he want to do? Oh, you want to take me over there? No, I want to go over there. He he wants to go his own way. He's still not trusting the Lord. Friends, the Lord is looking for us to trust him. The Lord is looking for us to be committed to him. Even when we're in times like right now, Lot is, and like we are, venturing into the unknown where we don't know what is coming next. Now, total commitment doesn't save you. The Lord does. But total commitment to the Lord, or as best as you can commit, given the fact that we are all sinful people, but a mindset of commitment to the Lord will position us for the Lord's best, not the world's best. Lot was saved by God because of God's grace and mercy God provided a refuge for Lot. He didn't want it. And God provides a refuge for us now under the cross of Christ. Today, few people believe in a God that will actually judge. Even many Christians don't believe it. 
But you look at the cross of Christ, just imagine it for a second. It tells us many things, but two things it tells us. It tells us, first off, what God thinks of sin. It also tells us a lot about the holiness of God. Verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Verse 24, then the Lord, or Yahweh, rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where we get the expression fire and brimstone preaching. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So even the plants were wiped out. Places just torched. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, some Bible scholars say she looked back longingly. It's not inherently clear. But what did the angel say? Don't look back. Now, I know we live in the age of, of, of positive and uplifting church. We live in an age where our pulpits have virtually no prophetic edge to them with just a few notable exceptions in terms of pastors that are famous right now. And the ones that have that prophetic edge are, are like 80, still preaching. And without the prophetic edge in our pulpits, that explains all the false converts that wilt when one little thing goes wrong. But here's the truth. The word of God shudders over divine judgment. I don't know about you. I read this and I'm just like, oh, oh. Interesting, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking to people who saw miracles but didn't believe. And Jesus actually defends Sodom saying they didn't see the works of God. And yet, how many of us have seen the works of God? How many of us have seen unbelieving friends become committed followers of Jesus? How many of us have seen unbelieving spouses or children become committed followers of Jesus? How many have looked in the mirror and seen ourselves become committed followers of Jesus Christ? We've seen great miracles, yet many church people do when they're unmoved by it. I think that's why often Jesus goes shopping for people to become his followers, not in church. He goes shopping at Satan's house. <laughs> goes to his crowd. Finds those people a lot more responsive. Proud church people go, yes, those sinners in Sodom, they just got what they deserved. When real people go, yeah, I belong there. I might not do all the same stuff that they do, but I do a lot of the stuff that they do. Can I be honest with you something? It's what I love about Calvary Chapel. It's full of people who used to live in Sodom. It's, it's full of people who came from, from the sinner's crowd, and they know it. You know, it's easy to end up like Lot's wife. Good chance she was from Sodom. 
unfazed by God's rescue. Now part of the frozen chosen. She, God chooses her and she, she can't even obey one simple command. I mean, don't be surprised and, and even, I would say, don't even stand in judgment on Lot's wife, Lot, the supposed man of God. He negotiated a little, with a little bit of sin. Why can't she? Lot insisted on going his own way with God, and he's the primary influence on his wife. Why can't she go her way? Why can't she do what she wants? If Lot doesn't think God is serious, why should I think God is serious? It's so important to remember that all of our sin hurts and affects others. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. We need to remember her for ourselves and for others. It's easy to be an unbeliever. It's easy to be a fake believer. It's easy to be a compromised believer. But God wants for you and for me to be a trusting believer. Verse 27, and Abraham, how many of you remember him? Went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the plain, all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. Just imagine then you're you're Abraham and you just go to the edge and you look out at where your nephew and your, one of your best friends, Lot, lives, and you see where he lives just engulfed. There's smoke everywhere. There's flames. There's, you're looking at this, and you're thinking, oh, no, Lot, Lot. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. How? How did he do that? And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Remember, Abraham, last week, God was like, could you save it for a couple righteous people, man? Could you do something like that? And so, and so God answered Abraham's prayer in an unexpected way. Somehow along the way, according to Peter, Lot came to the place of trusting God. What's interesting to me here is Abraham doesn't know Lot's fate. And what does he say to God here? Nothing. He's silent. He's just trusting the Lord his God. You see, that's the big difference between Abraham and Lot is their choice of influence. I've found many times in my life that when things are just not going right, I'm best off just to go like Abraham to the edge of the hill and just take a look or go for a walk and just say, Lord, this is yours. This is yours. Nothing I'm going to do about it. This is yours. You see, God's judgment is swift. I mean, think about it. God judged Jesus for our sins on the cross. Man, the time from the Last Supper till Jesus was hanging on that cross was not a lot of time. Sodom warns us that God's judgment will come 
quietly and quickly, and it will catch people off guard. This is sad. You, you, you live around Christianity long enough, you see how the trends change. Years ago, I, I knew many followers of Jesus who delighted in the, in, the, in the perishing of sinners. Now I don't know many who believe in it. It seems now so many in the church are suffering from complacency and, and indifference and self-centeredness. And the idea of escape is just gone. Now it's, well, you know, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, or, you know, hey, you want to come to my club, Club Calvary? Check it out, man. It's cool. Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Fire is a sign of the righteousness of God, and Abraham is standing there, and he actually sees it. By the grace of God, Lot was saved because he had a relationship with Abraham who somehow got him to put his trust in the living God in the same way we are saved with our relationship with the crucified and risen Christ because we must put our trust in him. In the case of Lot, in the case of anyone who ends up in heaven, an individual who does not deserve to be spared is spared because the life of another for the life of Jesus Christ it is because of him we receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now it's late, and it would be really nice to end the sermon right now. This is sometimes I look at the Bible and I go, Lord, no. But it gets worse, verse 30. We'll run through the end quickly. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor. And he and his two daughters dwelt or lived in a cave. Now the firstborn, the older one, said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come into us. The idea is no man to give us children, as is the custom of all the earth. That is a complete lie. It's not true. Where they lived, all the men were wiped out. There's plenty of men elsewhere. Just go back and live with Uncle Abraham. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father or our family line. So they made, verse 33, got their father uh, to drink wine that night, and the firstborn went and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and, she did not, and, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. That's more than a little bit of wine. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Remember, the Bible records the complete stupidity and idiocy. It doesn't mean that it endorses it. The firstborn bore a son, and you say, well, can you prove it? This verse proves it. The, first son, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So, 
Lot is still the same. Lot took the three of them out of Sodom, but, the, but Sodom is still in them. The influence of Sodom is still in them. The daughter's compromised father was willing to offer them to the crowd. Why should we then be surprised that their daughters are willing to compromise and do what they do? The effect of Sodom on his family is tremendous. Now, except for Ruth, who was a Moabitess, the Moabites and the Ammonites will be idol worshipers of the worst sort and will be such an annoyance to God's people. So see, the Bible records what they did and then it gives us the result. This is what happens. You think, well, this is just one guy doing this thing and two daughters, three people, that's it. It has no effect. Oh, it's got a huge effect and it's going to have a huge effect. And as much as I don't want to say this, I'm going to say this. And I don't know if this applies to anyone here or anyone watching, but if the shoe fits, wear it. Another drunk father strikes again. I'm going to tell you, man, I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of hearing about this. And if, and if your drunk father has struck at you, please, please, let him not define you. Let Jesus define you. And he may have touched you, but he didn't touch your spirit, and don't let him. Don't let him touch what doesn't belong to him. That belongs to your heavenly father. And if you are a father or a mother and you're drinking to excess, and one glass of wine is turned into two and three and four and five. Stop it now while there is still time. And if it was you in the past, remember this, but such were some of you. And do your best to try to mend those broken fences. And say it, that what you did was wrong. So here, the angels grabbed Lot by the hand and took him out of the city to be saved. But the influences and choices that Lot had made led to complete destruction in life and the way things turned out. But centuries later, Jesus Christ was led out of what had become, was supposed to be the city of God, but what had become a sinful city of Jerusalem. Jesus was led out, but unlike these people who were led out to be saved, Jesus was led out to be destroyed on the cross. And yet he too reaches out to you like the angels reached out to Lot. He reaches out to you, but his hands have nail pierces in them. Even today, he reaches out to you to pull you inside the door. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he reaches out to you to pull you inside the kingdom of God. 
but it'll only pull you in if you want to be pulled in. Why would he pull, what, does he want to pull you in to lead you out and away from judgment? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you notice there's only two verdicts here, either death or life. Which one do you choose? Do you choose death, spiritual death, a life apart, eternity apart from Jesus? The, the scripture teaches that we all live on for eternity. Do you want to live apart from Jesus or do you want to live with Jesus? Which do you choose? Which do you choose? 